Hello, and welcome to Introducing Me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I will give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interests, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own worldviews. Today, I would like to introduce you to Michelle Shakina. She is a survivor of domestic violence and sex trafficking. She was living the dream, married with children, when things turned with her husband. She got out of that situation and is now a role model to her children and an advocate for others, helping them see the light in those sort of dark times. So Michelle has much more to her story to share, some heavier topics, of course. So I'm grateful to have Michelle here today. Michelle, thank you so much. Why don't you go ahead and tell the audience a little bit more about your story? I will. Thank you for having me here today. Um, before I start, I always like to say that this is an older topic, let's say. I Usually 15 and over is more the appropriate age because it's a little sensitive on the material. That's for me. Um, so as a mother, I married someone who I thought was my fairy tale person. And it was for quite a while because I had created a home, like I'm sure most people have, with family and friends and dinners, and barbecues and holiday parties. And it seems pretty good for quite a while. But then um, after about 17 years, um, I had something happen tragically where I lost someone very close to me. Um, and that person was like my other half and she was very vibrant and celebrated life every day. And when she died very quickly after going to her funeral, um, without my support, um, from without support from my, my spouse, I came back and I said, I want to live life to its fullest. And I did not realize I was making a mistake in saying that to him because what he did was introduce me to a world that he was secretly living in that I didn't know existed. And it was pretty much a very dark Allison in Wonderland world that included drugs and drinking and deviant sexuality and um, prostitution and things like that. And I was the mother with two special needs children, um, with a team of doctors and teachers for both. I was a PTA president. I was a room mother and volunteer. I was very well involved in community. I was a very big fundraiser for different women's organizations. And that was how I spent my days and a lot of my nights. And I didn't, know what I didn't know. So when he went off to work to his own business and would disappear and would go back, nobody knew where he went. Or he would say he was working late and nobody knew where he was and would come home and I would have dinner on the table. Now, when we first met, I was a licensed healthcare worker for 10 years. And then when, after we had met within two months, he proposed to me in front of many people, um, which is a huge red flag, ladies. And it was as if I had, it was as if I had no option but to say yes. And I will 
you know, recommend if that happens, just run, (laughs) run out of the room as far as you can go for lots of reasons, be it as it may, there was no internet, there was no cell phone at this time. And so the awareness wasn't there. It was, oh, he's being chivalrous and romantic and wanted to include my family and his family and all of our friends, not realizing at the time that that was a really manipulative move. Um, luckily now we have a lot more awareness and we can talk about that after. So let's go back to the part where now I'm walking through this world of darkness and drugs and clubs. And, um, there's, there's this feeling that you'd only see in the movies that I didn't know existed and no was never an option. It wasn't, no, I don't want to go here. No, I don't want to wear this. No, I don't want to take this drug. I wasn't allowed to say that. Meaning that when I did say that, there was a lot of pushback. There was a lot of shame and guilt. And, you know, you're going to ruin everyone's night. Don't you want us to be closer? Don't you want our marriage to work? All of that. And that started when my first child was actually really little. And I was very young and very naive. And I thought that he was the man of the house and he was leading me and protecting me. And I let him do that because I come from a traditional household where my father's the man of the house and my woman supports him in his professional you know, world. And it worked out well, or so I thought. Um, it did not for me. So in being the youngest of many siblings, I come from a large family, you know, there's a, there's a very big difference in, uh, birth order. I also believe because my siblings are very strong and they led the pack and I followed. So that was kind of where I went from one house to that house. So here it was, I, my ex-husband was leading me down this path. I tried to say no because my instincts were telling me to, but I was shut down. So that, that period ended. And then we, I went back into, let's say regular life, so to speak, and had another child because I'd only had one at that time, had another child and it seemed really normal and loving and fun for a while. And, and it, it was because I made it so. Again, a very traditional religious spiritual home, um, very well known in the community, very connected to the community, religious organizations, all of that. And so when my, when my friend passed away and he started this up again, it was even worse. Um, it was really severe to the point where I started to get fearful of my life because it seemed like it was just for fun and then it escalated. And I always say it's kind of like the frog in the pot of water. If you put a frog in boiling water, it will jump out. But if you put it in cold water and you slowly turn the dial up, it will die. And that's essentially what happened with me. He introduced things very slowly. 
Let's go out for date night. Let's have a couple of drinks. Let's go to a club after and have a couple of drinks and let's go home. Okay. So then the next night or the next weekend or what have you, it would have gotten a little bit more intense. And then one day he brought out drugs and I didn't know that that was already happening. I didn't know that that had happened almost 20 years before that was going on at my wedding. I didn't know what I didn't know. So again, no, is not an option. And this person is in sales. And if someone's really good at selling in their career and they're successful at it, they can do that across the board in their own life. And it's really, really challenging to argue or to fight back or say no, just like in regular sales in a profession, the coercion that happens is so intense and so believable that, that I thought okay, he knows what's going on. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to believe him. He's going to take care of me. And that happened the first couple of times. And then again, that dial got turned. And then there were different groups of people that he introduced me to. And that dial turned even higher. So now it's a group setting. Drinks are being poured. I never make my own. It was him or his male friends made my drinks. Um, drugs were, they weren't, it wasn't even a question. And as much as I would push back, it would be in my face. You're going to do this. Um, you know, you're going to ruin the night if you don't. Why are we even here? It was just all of it. And it got to be really scary because not only did I fear that I wouldn't be able to get out of the situation, um, but I would watch my behavior change. And I knew that I couldn't control some of the things that were going on. And for someone like me, who's very type A usually, and a, a professional and was raised with ethics and morals, and this is not how you behave, um, it was really, it was frightening because I couldn't control the situation. I couldn't control how I felt. I couldn't push somebody off of me like I wanted to. And so then came the trafficking part. And at first it was just using me as a, I call it like being a circus animal, putting me on display. Um, watch what my wife could do, watch what I could do to her. Here, now you try it. Um, I was in situations that nobody, no woman especially, should be put in, in the back rooms of places and security is by the door so I can't get out or um, placed on people's counters or tables and shushed or hand over my mouth. Um, just all of these things. And again, the more I fought back, the more the drugs were pumped into me, so to speak. And if I tried to fight physically, again, the pushback was really difficult because, you know, I'm, I'm not petite, but I'm a smaller woman and you're talking about men. And now there's men and there's also women and the women are better at the coercion than the men. 
because women know how to befriend you. And if you have any childhood trauma that includes bullying or not feeling good about yourself and someone tries to include you in their group, you know, it's like the mean girls, Regina George, you're going to say, okay, I'll be your friend because you're being so nice to me. And then that trust, that bond is, is, is connected. And then they might have their own agenda and their dial starts to go up and whatever it is that they wanted from you gets pushed onto you, or at least me, that's what happened. So it was obviously, you know, lots of difficult situations you were in, you know, some, some blindsiding happening Mm. when, and, and the inability to say no. So when did you kind of realize I need to get out Mm. of the situation you were Mm -hmm. in also knowing Mm -hmm. that like you had two children you also had to take Mm -hmm. care of yeah well i always took care of the children no matter what um i think as mothers we kind of grow this muscle within ourselves of not sleeping because when they're newborns we just do because we have no other choice and with my second child i was a little older and at that point i had um, always been that that person where you know everyone was at my house because when he was out of the house it was me and the kids and it was beautiful because that's how I was raised and it's what I wanted and that's what I created and I mean I made menus for my kids and star charts so I was that mom and which you know they make fun of me now but they loved it and um, so. I would be doing that during the day and then, you know, eight, nine o'clock rolled around and he would want to start going out and we would go out and be out until the right before the sun came up or even the sun came up and then he'd want to go home and he would still be doing drugs. And I'd be like, I need to sleep because those children are waking up in two more hours. And we both knew that it was all going to be on me. So there were quite a few weekends where I slept a good two to six hours and I managed to do it. Um, it was me and Starbucks. Like we did it together as a team. You know, luckily I eat very well and I take vitamins. And so I was able to physically and mentally do it. Um, but then he would sleep till four o'clock and the next day and then wake up and want to go out again. So that, that was tough. Um, again, no, no was not an option was across the board. When I knew to get out was I found out that he wasn't just using drugs. There was a dealing situation. And of course, I wasn't supposed to know. And he had been doing it for quite a while and to quite a few people. And when I found that out, I, of course, freaked out and was, what are you doing? You are the father of two children and all of that. And then I knew that what was an already dangerous situation for me was now a dangerous one for everybody involved. And um, I was like, there needs to be an exit strategy. And I could see that as soon as I confronted him, it almost seemed like he was relieved that I knew because his behavior got worse, meaning that he was like celebrating that it was out in the open. And it got really scary because like I said, there were a few groups of friends that we had And they were all very different. They never connected. 
Um, but I could see some behaviors changing. His appearance was changing all of it. And it was almost as if they were trying to get me out because I was, I was too good. And they would say, you're too nice. You're too good. Whatever it was that they were saying that I might be the whistleblower or I could, you know, I just, I would put stops on him because he wanted to do a lot of different things, um, with other people. And I would say, I really would rather not do that. No, you know, that's a hard no. Um, ironically, when it came to me, he wouldn't accept that. But for himself, when I said that about him, he would say that. But I think that's because he was doing it without me knowing. Um, well, we did we did later on find, find that out. But going back to the getting out part, um, I just realized that it had to happen. And it took a while for me to do it because just like any abuser, most abusers or narcissist as it's called now, um, you know, he would be, you know, four days great and three days, not great. The four days that he was great. It was as if we were dating again and he was courting me and the flowers would come out and the gifts would come out and, you know, breakfast in bed and that sort of thing would happen. Or, you know, stay in bed and I'll take care of the kids. That was very rare. But um, again, type A, I never did. So, so the F and then they'd come in the room. It's like, okay, I'm just getting up. So, and moms, you understand. And then the three days he was horrible, like really bad. I remember one time um, he had me in a situation with two of his friends and you know, I, at some point people with, that have suffered any sort of, any trauma really, um, being bullied at school as a child or being sexually assaulted, there's a very big spectrum. You know, you kind of disassociate, you put your brain somewhere else, maybe from your body. So I remember doing that in this one instance. And then at some point, my brain and my body congealed again. And I sat up, and I pushed everyone off of me and I was like, no, this is going to end. And I went into a room and I locked the door and he wouldn't speak to me after that for two days. So I knew that he was no longer on my side. He was no longer the person that I thought I married. He was no longer the person that told my parents that he would protect me or told his own parents that he would protect me. And at this point, None of my family knew what was going on. None of my closest, dearest friends knew. I was embarrassed. I protected him. Um, and he had alienated me from my family. And I come from a really, really large family. And he had said poor things about every one of them to the point where I believed him. And at, at some point, he chose to keep them away or I did. And it wasn't that I wanted to, I was, I was in this, like this tunnel in, in, you know, like a tornado. I was inside of this, this vacuum of not knowing what was real and what wasn't. And that is the quintessential gaslighting, um, effect, uh, not knowing what to believe and what not to believe. So 
my feet were no longer grounded and I could look back and see that now. And I disassociate myself with her, that woman. Um, she was lost. What I finally did, well, like, like a lot of us, I keep shoes and sweaters in the car because you never know. And so I had a lot of that in my car. And one night after quite a few discussions with my kids about leaving and they wouldn't leave because they were teenagers. They didn't want to leave their stuff or their Xbox or their pets. And, you know, at this point he's, he was going out by himself and coming home drunk. And my older son was helping me get him in a car. We, we, he was lost. We found him one night. We had to bring him home. Um, my daughter was away for the summer, came home and there was, you know, a picture that was covering a hole in the wall. So I knew that it was just going to escalate. That dial was going to turn and I had to get myself out of there in order to keep myself and get myself better for my kids. I knew that they would be okay. 98% of me knew that they would be okay because like any other narcissist, their children are a reflection of them, male or female. And that was his thing. I'm super dad. I love you more, you know, and, and I will protect you and be there for you. Um, and that sort of thing they would, he would tell them. And so therefore I felt that they would be okay there. I got into the car and I left after saying, I tried to get my youngest to come with me. And then she fought me and went back. And I knew that that would be a lot of resentment if I forced her and I knew what I was doing was temporary. So I left and went to a safe spot and detoxed from whatever was in my system. I don't know to this day. And I thought I was actually going to die in somebody else's bed. That's how bad it was. Um, but I also knew that I could now get the support that I needed because my entire family came to me and wrapped their arms around me. And when I told them what was going on, my parents who, you know, were from the Rat Pack generation were like, what are you talking about? And, you know, these were people that were professionals when they were, you know, barely out of being teenagers. Um, I said, yeah, exactly. There's a world out there that most people don't know exist. Um, and I was able to get the help that I needed because thankfully there's a lot of organizations out there for survivors of domestic violence, um, men, women, teenagers. Um, there's a lot of organizations that financially will help you, um, will help you with food, will help you with clothes, educating children. I mean, there's, there's some really, really great organizations and I can offer that if necessary. Um, because even to this day, getting therapy, I get through organizations. Um, because they're, they specialize in trauma, which is very, very different than, let's say, the average depression, anxiety. Um, even something like PTSD, there are two different types. There's, let's say, the regular PTSD. Somebody sees something tragic or something happens to them. And of course, it's the same, it's a similar uh, symptom. So it's 
it's in their body, perhaps in their mind and that sort of thing. Um, and it can, it's an easier, it's an easy, I don't want to say it's an easier fix, but it can be managed a lot easier than what is known as CPTSD, which is chronic PTSD, which is somebody who has had things happen to them or they've experienced over and over and over and over again, which could mean four or five times being bullied, being bullied for one school year. It could be domestic violence for five to seven years, which was my example. It could be somebody who was in war for many, many years. Um, so, so there's different, you know, modes of, of treatment in that regard. And it's out there. It's definitely out there. Yeah. And we can definitely make sure, um, to get some of those resources listed into Mm -hmm. the description of this episode and, and on my website for, for people. Mm -hmm. Um, so you, you were able to get out, you were able to Mm -hmm. get to the safe space. So then Mm -hmm. what was it like, you know, going through divorce and making Mm -hmm. sure your, your children were safe Mm -hmm. and, and had you as, as good support. So they always say that one of the hardest parts or the worst part is after you leave. And I will say that that is what I experienced. Um, even through emails, text messages, even through parenting app where I recommend for anyone who gets divorced or separates, you get a parenting app. It's monitored or can be monitored. None of the emails can be deleted. If an email is, picks up, um, an, uh, for lack of a better term, an attitude or words that are inappropriate, it won't send it to the recipient. Um, So the person who's writing the email will have to adjust what they're saying. And if there's any lawsuit or what have you, anything having to do with um, custody, those emails can now be introduced as evidence on either side. So I recommend that. With my case, he came after me with a vengeance, um, called everyone I knew in the community saying that I was a drug addict and alcoholic and I cheated on him and all of these things. Um, he had some of his friends come after me in this sense of calling and texting. And, and some of these guys were like my brothers or I thought, and at first I thought, Oh, you know, they finally have seen his behavior because he would act out and be horribly rude where I would apologize for his behavior. And I thought, oh, they're protecting me. Well, that wasn't the case. Um, And um, he would tell everyone that financially I wouldn't get anything and I'd have to work so hard I'd never see my children. And when I went to get out what I could from our joint checking account, there was, you know, less than 20 cents in there. And this is after 19 years of marriage, almost 20, no, it was, it was, it was 20, 21 years of marriage, I believe. Um, so that was really, really tough. Um, it's, it still is, there's still emotional and financial abuse that goes on. It just changes shape. Uh, when I first left, he would tell stories to my children about me with other people that were so far-fetched that my daughter, who was a young teenager, would look at him and just say to him, she's told me that that's absolutely not the case. 
because how could I be doing these things and going to these certain bars or having these affairs if I was always with her at her school, at a meeting, at, you know, our, at my other organizations, at female at women's fundraisers, how could I be doing that if I was here? And my older one wanted to believe his father, even though he had been a part of that, which when he would come home drunk, whatever, he would have to help me. You know, a son wants to believe who he thinks is his hero and got very um, resentful. And that was really tough because we've had a really close relationship since he was obviously a baby. And I had to fight a lot of people in the school and the school board and doctors to get his needs met. And it was really, that was challenging for me. Um, that, that part of it was, so we divorced over zoom during quarantine, which was in itself an experience, um, after so many years and then sitting by myself in my, my now home, which I'm very proud of for 11 hours in front of a computer and getting divorced from you know, this entire world and life that before all of this nonsense went on, that it was, I thought was beautiful. And I had the pictures to show it. But once again, I did not know what was going on behind the scenes. So that's, that's actually the hardest part, like what was real and what were lies. So what it looks like now is, um, I've not seen him for four years. I tried to get a restraining order and they wouldn't give it to me where I live. It's very difficult. Um, it seems, but there's no need. Um, my, my oldest went to live with him. Our youngest at the time was a 50, 50 split. Um, although he had never gone to her school meetings or her doctors, didn't know what she was allergic to, didn't know what medication she was taking, none of that. So I was still parenting while she was with him. And, you know, it was, that was quite challenging as a healthcare worker Um, it was just, you know, it's in me as a mom, it's in me, um, going back to work in, in my licensed career that I hadn't worked at in 20 years, that was scary. Um, when I first went back, I had no idea what I was doing because 20 years is different. Um, as far as technology goes, there was no technology when I left the field. Um, like I said, this was before cell phones and the internet and social media, if anyone can even remember that. Um, when I went back, I was like, why can't I see anything? And I was like, oh, I'm 20 years older. (laughs) So, but like anything else, it's ingrained in your system if you've been at it for so long. So I immediately jumped back in and ironically, my career is what saved me because in healing people, you heal yourself. In helping people, you help yourself. Um, I, I felt stronger and confident. So when I would receive an email saying that if I disappeared, nobody would notice, or I'm not important, or who do I think I am, or, oh, you just do this for a living. No one cares about you. Um, so I'm an essential worker. <laughs> and I'm one of the top three of being, was being exposed to COVID. And again, after 20 years, I stepped back into being that in that job during COVID. 
And so that was my real life. And then I have him in my ear in the email saying that. So that was also a little bit of a quandary because, you know, again, when you, when you have somebody saying these things to your, your, in, to you over and over again, that chronic PTSD, it changes your neurology and your nervous system. It changes how you, your own belief system. And so the scales kind of tipped for me from feeling of, you know, less value to extremely valuable. So I will say as far as that goes, that changed. And then a month and a half after I left, um, with some financial support, because I had no money, I wasn't allowed to work and have my own money during those years. Um, I got into a place that was big enough for myself and my children. And, you know, it's very girly and it has, you know, words of affirmation on the walls and dry erase, you know, I, I'm love being your mom on her mirror and that sort of thing. And it's our safe home. And I've kept it this way for those many years that I've been away from him. And I'm really proud of that. And that's what she has seen. That's what my son sees when he comes in, when he comes here. So the difference is I, I never changed. I'm still the same mom that I was when they were little. Their friends come here and they call me mom and I hug them. Um, their friends that are part of the LGBTQ community where their parents don't accept them, they come in here and I give them hugs and love them and accept them. And they're allowed to talk to me about anything. Um, and it's, it's pretty, I've, I've turned it into a pretty spectacular experience in that I did not realize how much I was being stifled by his need to dominate me. Um, which, you know, of course I can see now that I'm out of it. People assert their dominance because of their own insecurities. Yes. It's definitely easier to see a situation when you're not directly in it. Um, Absolutely. So therefore, you know, you now, you now mm -hmm. have that saving grace of being out of it. Correct. So you just mentioned, you know, being supportive of your, you know, mm -hmm. children's friends and, mm -hmm. you know, being accepting. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. where are you kind of now on helping others and mm -hmm. advocating and making mm -hmm. sure, you know, that these like your story and similar mm -hmm. stories are are heard and, you know, those mm -hmm. other worlds do exist. Right. So what I've come to realize is that everyone has a story and everyone is in some sort of pain. And again, it's a spectrum, there's a degree. And some is manageable and some is not. And having patience of my own, I can see that there's a lot of people hurting. The good news is, is that we have tools. We have tools within ourselves, we have tools in each other, and you know, we have nature and, and animals, which to me heal all. Um, so where I am in the healing process is for myself, I've been in therapy with people that specialize in domestic violence and abuse and sex trafficking and trauma. And it's ironic because when I went to the first organization for safety and help, they're the ones that told me that I was in a domestic violence situation because I didn't believe that. 
you know, I just thought, oh, he's, you know, he's got some deviance and all of that. And, you know, he likes to choke me to the point where I pass out and still has sex with me. Oh, okay. He's just a sick guy. Cause I didn't know any different. Um, of course, talking about it out loud and saying it now, it's like, wow, why didn't I leave? Um, but she didn't know better or how to. So I've been healing myself with that in the, let's say the Eastern and the Western medicine. I do the meditation and Reiki and women's healing circles and we share and we talk and a lot of that. Um, I went back to religion, which was kind of taken away from me because those moments where we would celebrate and be spiritual and connect with our community, he would want to go out and party and do whatever, which was the antithesis of what we should have been doing, obviously. So um, for myself, that's how I grounded me. Um, uh, the other way is helping other people that don't feel good about themselves. In other words, that LGBTQ community, which my daughter is a part of, which if I go out and I see, you know, kids or young men that just, you could tell that there's a sadness because their, their families don't include them. You know, I will talk to them. I will hug them. They come to me, um, especially during June, which is pride month. Um, I have advocated for people and mentor people online. So people that I don't see their face, they don't see mine. And, but we, there, there's a kindred spirit there because I get them and I do see them, even though the screen might be black or what have you. And it's, it's a, it's a lifeline to have because the worst part is the nighttime. And it was for me because I went from, let's say my parents' home to my husband's home or our home to nothingness, to being alone. And again, I'm, I'm middle-aged and that's a very, very shocking experience. And I've made it through and I taught myself and I learned other tools. So I, I really am there for other people in that regard. Um, other people have reached out to me through friends or through organizations. They know that they can call me and I will go to them with them to the doctor, or I've gone to the hospital and spoken to those healthcare workers because I speak their talk. And usually when somebody is going to get themselves checked out physically or emotionally, they might seem crazy. And those are not my words. Those are words that I've read and have heard. And it's not craziness. It's, it's the result, like I said earlier, of gaslighting and confusion. And, you know, without even knowing somebody's story, I can look at them and see the difference. And I've spoken to police officers for them. And because that's actually the hardest part. I think now there's a little bit more awareness, depending on where you live perhaps, um, or even depending on that officer, male or female, their experiences, um, their own belief system. But again, I think there's a lot more awareness than there used to be. Um, but I, I advocate for that person who needs my help at that moment to tell their story. Because again, I, I know both sides of the spectrum. I know, the, I know what, what that person has gone through. I know what's happening with them physically. 
and I understand what the police officer, the information that they're looking for. So I'm able to put that together. I've done that because that's a really, it's a very, very frightening, but crucial moment. And I mean, listen, it could be for a car accident. Um, I've stopped at many car accidents where, you know, there are teenagers lying on the ground and the police aren't there yet. And the team hasn't been there yet. And I've done the vitals and I've been able to be that person. And I will tell you, having gone through what I have, I'm, I'm able to help so many more people. Um, I think because the shock value of an emergency is less when you go through your own personal trauma and especially if it's been really um, an essential one or an exacerbated one. You know, I always say there's nothing that would shock me now. Nothing. And I, I, you know, it's not a great thing to think about, but I just, I just twist it. I always try and see the positive mostly. Um, And I realize that, you know, like they say, when a disaster happens, you look for the heroes. So, I always kind of did it before, but even more so I run towards the fire because I know that I'll get out through the other side. And that's what I've learned through all this. And that's such an important role to take and a, you know, a lesson to learn for you to kind of have been on this path and realize, you know, where, where you should be and, and with helping others. Mm -hmm. So what are your plans for going forward in life? That's such an interesting question because that is a ruminating thought that I have, which, you know, um, anyone who has any form of OCD or anxiety, it comes in different forms, mine are ruminating thoughts. And, you know, I try and make it to where they're positive ones. And if they're not, let's bring you into positive affirmations. Again, that's something we could talk about another time or I'll have it on my website and one of my blogs. So for the first time I'm going to be an empty nester in the fall because my youngest is going to college. And again, alone completely aside from my two dogs, Um, which, you know, and a stray cat or something outside always. So the question is what I'm going to do. And I've been thinking about that. And, you know, first that came from fear and it's like, Oh my God, what am I going to do now? I'm like, I could do anything I want because I'm not on their schedules. I'm not on his schedule. I mean, I wasn't even allowed to decide what I wanted to eat at times um, or what to wear. So, you know, everyone's like the world is your oyster. And I say that to my own children and I'm thinking to myself, I'm in the same boat that they're in, in some form because I'm starting over in every sense. So, my goal is to help as many people as I possibly can. And I realized that I survived for a reason. Had I stayed another week, I would not be talking to you right now. I wouldn't be alive. There's no way. I had lost 18 pounds in three months. I was in you know, the safe house in the bed and shaking from detoxing from I don't know what. Um, my mind was, I was out there um, because there were people following me and what have you. I mean, he's pretty sharp guy. And, 
you know, I've been told that I'm one of the best success stories um, for my doctors, which I'm like, whatever that means. And so going forward, going forward, um, I just want to do so much more of what I'm already doing. Um, as a healthcare worker and still a mother who supports her children financially, I, I have to have a career where I can do that. So part of the healthcare working I'm going to still be doing. Um, but eventually I want to tip those scales and, and really do this full time. Um, more groups and speaking and people calling me and knowing that they've got me as their lighthouse and gathering other people to help me along with that, which I have a few um, with different experiences of their own and um, really getting my family involved, my children involved. Um, you know, I have two kids with two separate issues, um, both with special needs, physically and emotionally, learning, learning disabilities, um, you know, on both ends of the spectrum, who have great lessons for the younger generations. And I would love for the three of us to do something together. And I see that happening eventually. Yeah. So that's, that's where I'm going forward. I think those are some great aspirations and you've got such a, a good outlook there for the future. Um, now I, I've got to ask if you're willing to share because you did mention your dogs and you've got one in the background. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> He's got a bad trachea. I mean, it's, you know, that's how he breathes. You're my little pig. Well, so I, I was just, you know, kind of curious what kind of, what kind of dogs do you have? How old are they? So they're poodles and one is 15 and one is six. And of course they have to be, my bed is, so I never did the family bed because of course he didn't want to, but I come from the house, like I go to my parents' house, I still get, we all get in their bed, you know? So my bed is kind of like my desk um, and it has all of my journals and the workbook I'm creating and the computer and the dog's water dish and the two dogs. And so they're both poodles. One is six and one is 15. And it's funny because we say the girls in the family are very similar and the boys in the family. So like my little, so the girl is just like my daughter and the boy dog who you hear is just like my son. <laughs> it's very funny. <laughs> I mean, I wanted four children and unfortunately that was not approved of, but I, so I have four based on the furry ones too. That, yeah. That is great. Yeah. Now, before I start to wrap things up, is there anything else you would like to share with the listeners today? Mm -mm. I think that any, if, if really, if anyone needs help or um, tactics to use um, anything, they can go to my website um, and contact me. And if you want to discuss anything forward. If you have something very specific, I have different people that work with me that if it's something really, really specific, like, um, somebody who has survived, um, a, a family member with alcoholism there, that trauma might look different. And I have someone who specializes in that. Um, 
of course, for me, it's an array of things. If it's someone who's in the LGBTQ community, I have somebody for that. Um, and together, collectively, we'll heal the world. And that's what I'm going to do, one person at a time. That's the goal. Awesome. I will make sure, of course, to leave your website in the description with, um, you know, some of the organizations, as we were mentioning earlier. Mm-hmm. Now, at the end of all my episodes, I do ask my guests a random question. So my question for you is, what is the most interesting place that you have toured? I haven't gone many places. Um, again, all the time I was married, we never really went away. Um, I will say one of my favorite things I've done was actually locally. It was um, an art exhibit, but it was... It was like an, I forget what they call it, but it was a, it's a Van Gogh exhibit Mm -hmm. and it's, you know, his artwork all over the walls and you walk through it and, you know, quotes of his, and it was really cool how they did the visuals and the tech with his paintings because I love art. Um, I would say that was kind of neat. That and, of course, any island that you can put me on, I'm in, you know. But I thought that was really cool to bring um, artwork from, you know, a really long time ago and make it kind of cool and hip where a lot of millennials and younger even love to go. So... All right, that brings this episode to a close. As mentioned, I will be leaving Michelle's website in the description if you would like to go and check that out. It is from thefloortothedoor.com, but that link will be there in the description. I'll also be leaving a handful of organizations in the description for various, you know, survivors of domestic violence, whether they're organizations that Michelle has used or just has experience with and knowledge. They all have some great things. Um, out there and you know the one that she stressed the most um, was women in distress so that will be one of them along with a few others and of course if you would like to connect with the podcast our website is in the description that does bring you to all previous resources that guests have mentioned that is on the website along with all past episodes and of course brings you to our social media if you'd like to find us there we are on instagram facebook and linkedin so feel free to follow those pages And if you'd like to support the podcast monetarily, there is a link to do that in the description as well. And if you would like to be a guest on the show, my email is in the description. That is always the best way to reach out to me. So thank you so much, Michelle, for spending time with me today. And to my listeners for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story. Until next time. Bye. Bye, everyone. Thank you.